What humility and encouragement uh, must have been found in the hearts of those 12 men as they now stood before Jesus and the rest of his disciples. There were not just 12, there were many, but these 12 had a specific role and responsibility. Their hearts must have been overwhelmed at the realization as Jesus literally and spiritually summons them out of the group and calls him, drags them in their hearts toward him and his mission. They marveled at this authority that Jesus has shown over the last several months. They were lost, they were saved, and now Jesus was sending them as Christ's soldiers into the world. However, in this commissioning, their excitement must have quickly turned to great concern, if not terror, for what Jesus just told them. Listen to these words. You are going to be surrounded by those who will destroy you. They're going to flog you. They will drag you into the streets. Your families will turn other family members over to death. You will be hated for my name's sake. Your family will turn against you and will become your enemy. Whoever loves their earthly family more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. So imagine that you have just been called by this rabbi, and you can listen to all the past sermons and understand the, the overwhelmed excitement that these men have been given the authority of the Messiah to go into city to city, to village to village, to preach the gospel, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, to heal the sick, to care for needs, to cast out demons, and if be so, to raise the dead. And in the next breath, Jesus tell you those things. This was a terrible way of recruiting people, isn't it? This is a terrible way to get people to join. Come to our church plant. You're going to set up every Sunday. You're going to tear down. If you don't work, it will be obvious to those around you. They will not like you though they will smile and pretend that you're awesome. Come. When you can, if you keep driving right down the road, there's a bigger church, maybe better church, I don't know, who has a lot of stuff for you to do. Come and, and be a part of this mission. I mean, this is a terrible recruiting method that Jesus is doing here is I've got a specific thing for you to do, but I want you to know it's going to be even worse than, than those things. They're going to flog you. A Roman flogging, the, the whipping of your back until literally the flesh falls off like tassels. This is meant to, to mutilate a body. You want to go? You want to do this? In preparation for the sermon this morning, I just happened to, to look at the Army's website. I don't know if you've checked out the Army's website lately. But immediately, this is what you'll notice. Get up to $40,000 in bonus money. I'm like, where? Earn the tab is one of their key statements. I didn't know this until this week, but a tab is a certain type of patch, and they'll probably even rebuke me for saying patch, but it is a, like if you've ever seen an Army guy and it says Ranger, that is a tab. Airborne, that is a tab. And it, it talked about Army Rangers, Special Forces, in this catchphrase, unique training, unique skills. Wearing the tab is an honor for soldiers who have earned it. With a few more clicks, I saw this amazing housing and house that they would provide for my, my, me, Laura, and the kids. Um, I, I learned about fitness centers, bowling alleys, golf courses, and snack bars that could be used at my disposal. And I like snacks. What I did not see anywhere on that website is war. You can die. I didn't see any pictures of soldiers who have lost their arms and legs. 
I saw no statistics of the amount of, of men and women who come back and take their lives because they simply cannot handle the depression, the anger, and the images that play over and over and over in their minds. I saw no effects of PTSD. I saw none of those things at all. All I saw was how awesome it would be for you and I to go army. Now, I think the army is a great thing, but there is the reality of war. And Jesus doesn't hesitate. He does not paint an easy picture for these men. But simply, he, he explains to them that this mission that they must accomplish, that they must do, would lead them to die. As in several sermons before, I've, I've talked about the lives of these men and how um, all of them, except for John, ended up giving their lives in brutal, brutal ways. And it wasn't because they didn't try to kill John. They dipped the man in hot bowling wax, and he came out fine. So they didn't know how to kill a man who was unkillable, so they put him on an island to rot. And that's when God came to him, visited with him, and gave him the book of Revelation. But these men, from this moment, these probably young teenagers, shaking in their boots, these college-age men are standing here full of zeal, full of excitement, and then Jesus tells them the reality of them being led as sheep into the wolves' den, to be drugged into streets, to have them families hate them and even turn them over into death. That if they did not take up their cross and follow him, that they were not worthy of him. That if they did not proclaim this gospel, if they were ashamed to do so, that God himself, would, he would be also ashamed of them. The first thing that we didn't understand this morning is that the mission causes suffering. The mission causes suffering. Verse 16 begins with the word behold. Now, we don't usually use that statement very much in our type of language. I don't know if you behold the Tennessee, you know, volunteers won by a prayer yesterday. We don't really say that. I mean, we think that you're probably strange. All right. One, that you rooting for Tennessee. And two, that you would use the word behold. But Jesus wants them to grasp. It is a, it's an attention-grabbing word that Jesus is saying here. He is saying, you know, behold the seriousness of this mission that I am calling you into. I am sending you like sheep into the midst of wolves. As we talked about last week, sheep are always on the defensive. They have zero offensive weapons, okay? Um, and so Jesus sends sends them into the den of these wolves. Yet the disciples were not called to play defense against sin, Satan, and death. They were called to, to, to aggressively and systematically go into the wolves' own territory. Jesus is telling these men, if you see a burning house, run into it. If you see a problem, a spiritual problem, run to it. Run into the problem. Run into the chaos with the gospel. John Piper once said, there's no question that, that what happens to sheep when they are sent into the den of wolves. It is unnatural for a sheep to walk knowingly into the den of wolves. Yet Jesus is calling them what he is calling them to do is not natural. It is supernatural. We're taking sheep that are mangled and helpless who have been saved by the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, and who have been armed with the artillery of the gospel. And he sends these now aggressive, on the offensive sheep into the den of wolves. Yet Jesus is calling them in this supernatural why, why? Because at the end of all missions, all that all people will be able to say is, look what God did. This makes no sense for this to happen. And yet, look at what God did. See, brothers and sisters, you need to understand this. The word martyr originally meant witness. It later became known as we know it as the witness 
who ultimately died for sharing the gospel. They die for witnessing the gospel, for proclaiming this message. But we need to know, brothers and sisters, that this is not simply an act of sin, Satan, and death against people, but martyrdom is never an accident. It is the will of God. Jesus tells this early followers, I'm sending you into this place. Who's doing the sending? God is. Jesus is. He is the one pushing, casting out, sending these sheep into that den, knowing along the way that some of those very sheep proclaiming the gospel are going to die. This is a, an extremely graphic, graphic image that Jesus is painting for his disciples. Going in, go into inter, enemy territory. You're going to be outnumbered, but I'm with you, and some of you are going to die because of this. Don't hesitate. Go. Though they were in the den of wolves, though you will be flogged, though you will be drugged into the streets, though they will slander you, as verse 26 says, have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Now, I don't think that this means that we need to, as you've heard me say today, run into a Muslim mosque. I don't believe that that's what Jesus is saying. If anything, I think he's telling us to be, earlier on, he's telling us to be you know, wise as a serpent and innocent out of the dove, to be people of integrity, okay? However, the fear of death and the fear of ridicule from these people should not hinder us, should not keep us from doing the mission of God. This is why Paul will later be able to say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So Paul is saying, man, I... I'm going to run into the, the lion's den. I'm going to run to where the wolves are. I'm going to run into the burning house for the sake of who? For Christ, lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is the church. For the cause of the church, for the glory of God, I am willing to die because to die is gain. To lose this life for Christ's sake and his mission is truly gained. This is the mission of God's people. It is the mission of the church. All of us, every one of us, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet you are not living on mission, are being disobedient to God. The second thing is, is that the mission will divide. What do we see here in these passages? You see that God, Jesus, says, I, I did not come to bring peace, that there are going to be people that are going to hate you because of these things. There are going to be people that are going to mock you. If you're a Christian, your daddy isn't, and your dad is militant against Christianity, you're going to have issues with your dad. Ask our Songhai brothers and sisters in, in, in Africa, working with Mark and Parker, of how many of them have, have lost their family members because it is a predominantly Muslim country, an area, and they've become Christians. They quickly, at the point where those believers in the Songhai begin to say that they are followers of Jesus, they immediately say, you know this is going to cost you your life as you know it, and possibly your physical life. And yet, what do these people do? They go and profess Jesus. They go down to the watering hole where people are naked and bathing and, and feeding their animals, watering their animals. They get baptized in that water. They stand up in front of all those people and they begin to proclaim the gospel immediately as new converts to the Muslim people. This is the calling of God. And yet it causes division. What does it cause division from? And it should cause division from our culture. If we're being obedient and following Jesus this morning, if we have the pleasure and opportunity to follow Jesus here this morning with joy and with gladness, then that is going to separate you from the culture. How we should have a biblical worldview, our worldview should be very different from those people of the world. 
our practices, the way that we um, date, the way in our singleness, the way that we are, are married, the way that we raise our children should reflect that of Scripture, not the things of this world. Our purpose, your drive. I tell my college students all the time at Western is that they've been fed a lie. They believe that coming to college is about getting an education so that you can eventually get a good job and that you can make a bunch of money. That's called the American scam. It's not reality. And it should not be your purpose. Just like your job, brothers and sisters, is not to get a paycheck. It's your mission field. It's your cover. It's your opportunity to engage the world who is lost. The way that we view politics, and Lord have mercy, I don't have time to go into that today. But the way that you look at politics and who, are, who should not be president and the views of this culture should all be filtered through and underneath the authority of Scripture. It separates us. The way you view race should be viewed through Scripture. All of these things will cause separation, though. It will cause anxiety. It will cause division. And I want you to know, and this is really difficult, that is in God's sovereign plan for that to happen. You are a peculiar people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation mission church. We should look differently. We should act differently. We should live differently. We should party differently. We should, we should celebrate differently. We should raise our kids differently. We should look at all of these things very differently because the gospel is causing an awkward, for a lot of people, division between us and our culture. Also, ladies and gentlemen, it should cause a division between your friends and your family. This is not always a negative division. Sometimes it is simply because of distance. I think about foreign missionaries. I think about Jen and Jason Lewis living in Kazakhstan, thousands upon thousands of miles away. It's like a 30-hour plane flight to, their fam to see their family. Many people don't know this now because we're several generations into this, but Jennifer Lewis's brother died, Greg, at a young age on a mission field. He was in a car wreck, and he lost his life on foreign soil. The gospel, this mission, causes some awkwardness. It, it causes people to, to really solidify and, and yet are, are very, it, it can be very difficult when, when God is working inside of you as an individual. College student, if you were to go to your parents right now and say, I'm dropping out of school to go full-time into missions, even if you grew up in a Christian home, how many of you that would be awkward? And some of you I know have grown up in non-Christian homes. Imagine how even much more awkward that is. And yet, the call of God, the call of the gospel, the point of the mission, his mission to, to redeem us and then cause us to be ambassadors for Christ and the rest of the world is causing us to cause great division, even if that means within our parents, within our friendships. They are not going to get it. They're not going to understand but who is the source of this division? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus says that he did not come to bring peace on this earth. What is he talking about? He's talking about there, there are going to be wars, there are going to be these things. But what Jesus came to do was he came to bring peace with God. And, and Jesus illustrates this over and over and over again that he is different that he is unique, he is not like the pagan culture, he is not like the religious culture around them. Um, Jesus was ran out of his own hometown. Um, Mary didn't really understand um, his first miracle, right? She's kind of wanting Jesus to show off. He's like, hey woman, my time hadn't happened yet, right? She didn't really understand until later on. He is deserted at the cross, by 11 of his closest friends, the only guy that stuck around to watch him be mutilated and hung on that cross was a guy named John. 
His friends left her. His brothers and sisters didn't worship him. And do you blame him? I mean, what if your brother or sister showed up today and was like, I just want you to know I'm God. Worship me. They would look at you foolish. But yet, what do we see James, the brother of Jesus, doing later on in his life? James is believed to be the the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he is declaring that Jesus is God. But not until after his death, burial, and resurrection causes division. The mission is costly, isn't it? For those of us who are engaging in mission, whether that's nationally or in foreign fields, we we understand this idea. What does he say in verse 38 through 39? And whoever does not take his, excuse me, not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross. What a terrifying image to those men. See, the Romans had put in an express lane for capital punishment. Jesus wasn't the first of three dudes to be crucified. At one given point in, in history of Rome, there is six, I, I think it actually was the Spartans, the, um, Spartacus, if you know much about that history, there are 6,000 of them were crucified on a, on a strip of land, a roadway that would be about the distance between here and Louisville, Kentucky. So imagine driving up I-65 and every few feet, there's a person hanging on a cross. So Jesus, again, these are newbies, right? These are rookies. Hey, to do this mission thing, you're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to follow me. When he says take up this cross, what is he getting at? You are a dead man walking. You are walking to your death. This is death row. This is your your final countdown here. You are walking toward death. If you're going to follow me, then you got to pick up this cross, and I'm going to physically do that here in just a few years. You don't quite know that or understand that yet, but in just a few years, I'm going to physically do that, but in in a symbolic way. What is he saying? He's saying, man, you have to lose what you want out of this life to follow Jesus. To do what God wants you to do, you have to die to your desires. He's saying, if you pick up that cross, what are you doing? It's like the old saying that they say, you never see a hearse following a funeral. Uh, Excuse me, that was funny. You'll get that later. You never see a a U-Haul following a hearse to a funeral. Why? Because you can't take that stuff with you. Jesus is saying, man, if you truly want to follow after me, if you truly understand this gospel, then you have to die to that house. You have to die to that car. You have to to die to what you think is successful out there. You have to die to what you ultimately want your kids to do and what you would have them to do. You have to die to your security. You have to die to your possessions. You have to die to your safety. You have to die to your life. If you are in the grave, do you care about anything that you have collected? No. I tell my dad all the time, I was like, I appreciate it if you go through all this junk that you have laying around your house that you've been hoarding up. Because I just want you to know, as soon as you croak, we're having a yard sale at 222 Spence Lane, Franklin, Kentucky. All right? Because, Dad, all this stuff that you care about doesn't mean anything. And you're not going to care about it either. That's the reality of what Jesus is calling them to. See, if I know I'm going to die, my stuff doesn't mean anything to me. And Jesus is saying to them in a symbolic way, I want you to go ahead and realize and to live like you are going to die. So therefore, nothing in the trappings of this world and consumerism cannot hold you down because you are living in such a way that you're dead. Think of all the reasons of why you will not go to the foreign mission field right now. And are any of them eternal? See, when you take that idea and you put it in view of the cross, if you view it in view of the ministry that God is calling us to, you will quickly realize that you don't need near as much stuff. But it's really that stuff 
that is keeping us from locally and globally expanding the gospel. Every excuse I have is all very finite and not eternal. And for me, I'm, I feel desperately called. This is my mission field. I, I'm a missionary to Bowling Green. I'm a church planner in this nation. This is my calling. If it has been any more solidified for me, it has been this week as I've been deeply encouraged learning about this and what I've been sharing with this. Because I want you to know some right now, if you're not a Christian or if you're not engaged in mission, you're kind of freaking out about what Jesus is saying. But I, I want you to know from a different perspective, this is extremely liberating to me. Like, I don't, I don't need all of this stuff. I don't need the security. I don't need possessions. I don't need safety. I don't need life. He's saying you literally know you're going to die. And Jesus is, again, going to illustrate this and then pick back up his life, doesn't he? On the day of the resurrection. The fourth point that I want us to understand today is the gospel, the mission, there is great reward. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be persecuted, not only by strangers, but blood relatives. But I want you to catch these rewards that Jesus is going to say, and I hope that they are, they're overwhelmingly encouraging to you. Verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 24 through 25, you will become more like Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, imitation of Jesus is the mark of authentic Christianity. And above all else, Jesus is a missionary, and in being missionary, wants us to imitate him by living a life of mission. He wants us to illustrate that. He even says, they're going to make fun, if they'll make fun of me, they're going to make fun of you. But I want you to know, if you are going to be like your master, I want you to be like me in every single way. This is a great reward. Brothers and sisters, when, when we are persecuted for proclaiming this gospel, and when people make fun of us and use social media, or they distance themselves from us and divide themselves from us, it should, in turn, though we grieve the loss of that relationship, we simultaneously rejoice in that we are being made to be much more like Jesus. Verse 31 he tells us that you are valuable to him. God cares for the very smallest details of your life. The smallest details. If he cares for the sparrow, the little bitty bird, how much more does he care for you? Even though he's sending you into a mission of death. But you must experience that death to experience that life in him. That he is going to, to use this mission for your sanctification and that you are valuable to him. That he knows, as scripture would tell us, but even that hairs on our head or the lack of them are all numbered. And he knows that about you. And he cares about you. That he wants and has knitted you together to be the way that you are. And he cares about the finest details of your life. I believe that God cares about what you're going to eat after, after worship today. And in some way, when we acknowledge him and worship him through that meal, he is, 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 his glory is reflected more even in our lives and in this world. He cares about you being able to schedule your classes, college students. And the frustrating thing that that is. And yet, when you can't schedule the one that you want at the time that you want, I want you to know that he is sanctifying you through that experience. What if we could see the most frustrating points of life as the sovereignty of God sanctifying our life? How powerful would that be? That even this, when things don't go, 
the way that you want them to go, that that is God's plan, that he is working, that he is molding you into his likeness, that he cares for you, and that it is of value to him because you're of value to him, that if he withholds something from you, or if it's not that easy, that he's really trying to do something in your life. Doesn't that change you type A people? I'm, I'm like right there in the middle between type A and type B. It depends on what we're talking about. But man, I found much, much deep encouragement this week thinking and realizing that, that I'm valuable to God, even the smallest details. That, that God carefully wove the lack of hair follicles on the top of my head. And is that remarkable? When I first went bald, I, I don't mind telling you this, I mean, it really bothered me. Because I had Fred Savage thick hair, if you know who Fred Savage is. I looked like Fred Savage as a little kid. My family called me Fred Savage. Um, I wonder years, me and Wendy, we were like that. I mean, but to know that, that God is both holding a planet that we haven't even found yet, in perfect placement. And yet knows to the perfect measurement that freckle on my shoulder. And it's all valuable to him. That's a great reward. That's a powerful reward. He tells us in verse 39 that we gain our lives. In verse 40 through 42, he says that we will receive a great reward. And what reward is that? It is God's reward. And so men and women throughout history have read these passages that I, I have just read to you right now. They've read these passages and they've heard all of the scariness. All right? They, they've heard all of the terrible or what seemingly seems to be terrible Horrific things about sheep going into the, the, the den of wolves and being persecuted and flogged and your family turning against you. They have heard all of those things. And yet, what has been the response of those who have truly been saved by Jesus? We know all of this, but we count all of that as nothing compared to what we will gain in the reward of knowing God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That must have been a motivating thing. The, the, the reward was greater than the suffering. The, the, the reward was greater than the division. The, the, the reward is greater than the cost. And brothers and sisters, I know because I'm one of you, I'm counted among you. I know the difficulties and the struggles and the, the tormenting of the mind and the heart as we experience physical loss and divisions between relationships and the, the costliness of security and possessions and safety and life. I, I, I am counted amongst you in the midst of all of those things. But if we look at these brothers, as I mentioned, their lives after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they were committed to that. And yet throughout all of church history, we have seen men, women, children who counted the cost and yet went and died to self. And some of them physically die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Historically, the marks of authentic Christianity is not one of earthly prosperity, ease, and popularity, but is one of suffering. Suffering for the sake of the mission. A lot of times when we read the New Testament, we see things about suffering and persecution. We try to apply that to Maybe we got fired from our job. Does God care about that? Yes, I believe that God cares about that. But that's also taking Scripture out of context. Many of the times when, when the Gospel writers and, and Paul the Apostle and the New Testament writers, all these things come together and they're talking about persecution, pain, suffering, all of these things are inflicted upon them, not because of sin, Satan, and death, but ultimately because of the mission that they are living for Jesus. And it is a suffering mission. It is a difficult mission. We must count the cost. 
of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, my time that I've got left here, I want to share a story with you from Christian history that, that I have just been deeply, deeply encouraged with the reading of these passages and the studying of, of church history this week and the study of these men. I, I think that there is literally something, this is a physical, real, true story of the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering and mission. I think that there is something for every man in here. I think that there are great things for singles in here, for college students, for, for older people, for younger people, for men, women, children, all of you. And so I want you to understand what we have just read and keep those things in mind with the story that I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you the story of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was born in America in 1788. He's the son of a pastor. He's a PK, that means preacher's kid. And he was brilliant. By the age of three, his dad went somewhere on a preaching or business trip, and his mom thought that, that um, Adoniram was so intelligent that she was going to teach him at the age of three while his father was away, how to read. So she sat down with him and began to teach him how to read by using the Bible. By the time that his daddy got home from the trip, he could read. By the age of 16, he enters college. Now, that seems really strange to us, but it was very common actually during this time. It was called Providence College, which is now known as Brown College. These are very, you know, New England, Ivy League schools here that originally, if you didn't know this, did you know that Harvard started out as a seminary to train pastors? As most Ivy League schools were based on Christianity and preparing people for ministry and missions, have long since divided from that. Because the gospel divides. He started college, which is a Christian school, at the age of 16 and became friends. His best friend was a guy named Jacob Ames. And Jacob Ames was a deist, and that was very popular. Some of our even founding fathers are believed to be deists. They kind of believe that God created the world, that he spun it in motion, and that he had stepped back from his creation, and he has no control about what's going on on the planet. He's just watching it unfold before him. They became best friends, and when uh, Judson left college, he was an atheist. He finally, on his birthday, got up enough courage to go tell his parents that he was a believer. That though his daddy was a preacher, though he was raised in a Christian home, he did not believe in God, he did not believe in Jesus, and therefore was going to go um, take his intellect, and um, he was trying to decide whether he was going to be like a statesman or a politician or if he wanted to go into writing, because he loved to write. And he decided that he was going to, to go to New York and to learn how to be a play writer, and that he was going to write stories and plays. As his parents on his birthday were in tears as he shares them this information, he essentially asked for um, his birthright from his daddy, and he asked for a horse. And reluctantly, his daddy gave him a horse as they watched their son their prodigal son, leave the house and go to New York. In New York, he began to study theater and, and, and how to write plays, and he just begins to live this crazy, crazy life. And there's so much out of this that I'm, I'm, because of time that I've got to leave out that I wish I could share with you because I think that is just absolutely riveting at what God does in this man's life. He lives this crazy life, but he began to realize that it was leading him nowhere, so he decided, I'm going to go back home after several years. And as he's going back home, he, he couldn't make it all the way home, so he stopped in this town that he had never stayed in before. He goes into this inn, and there's an innkeeper, and this innkeeper says, hey, man, there, there isn't any rooms here. There's no room in the inn. And Judson keeps pleading with the guy, hey, man, I'll stay anywhere. I'll go to sleep right now. I'll be up before anybody else shows up. I'll stay anywhere. And he says, well, sir, actually, we do have one room. 
And he says, but the thing is, is that there's a man in the room next to that one who is dying. And so you're probably going to be up all night long because this man is in, in critical condition. And all he does is moan, cough, and cry out all night long. And that's why I told you that we didn't have a room. And, the guy, and J- Judson was so tired that he, he said, well, sir, I'll, I'll take anything you got. I'm that tired. And so Justin, uh, Judson goes to sleep into that room. And all night long, he lays awake as the man is, is is dying next to him, moaning out in the middle of the night, crying out in the middle of the night, just, just gut-wrenching, uh, you know, moans and, and yelling and all these things all night long. The next morning, he gets up and he asks the innkeeper about the man who was in the room next to him. The innkeeper tells him that, sir, we're sad to say that the man died in the middle of the night. Judson asked him, he said, well, do you happen to know who the man was? And he said, actually, I do. He's a young man from Providence College named Jacob Ames. His friend. He hadn't seen in years. He stayed there for hours. He began to think to himself that the Holy Spirit, I believe, began to work inside of his life. And he began to ask this question. This wrecked him. His heart, he got upon his heart, his, his horse and his heart just began to break. And his eyes were filled with tears as he contemplated life and death and the gospel. And he said this, if Jacob Ames was right, then his death that just took place is completely meaningless. And there is no way that I can believe that. So Judson begins to study the scripture. He begins to study theology. And God awakened his dead heart and saved him. He started attending a seminary. He had read this sermon by somebody on foreign missions, and they actually said that the sermon wasn't that good. So there's hope for my preaching as well, because he said that though the sermon wasn't that good, he felt the Holy Spirit prompting him to go into foreign missions. Remember, this is early in American history. Okay, We're, there aren't very many people here. There are few churches here. There are tons of lost people in America during this time. What do you mean go send someone else to a foreign field? There are lost people here. Where are we going to get the money from? The churches, they were just had never heard of or thought of the idea of somebody from America, an American citizen, wanting to leave this place to go to the foreign mission field to preach the gospel. And yet, he convinced them, along with some others, to send him on a foreign mission trip, believing he would go to India, but he ended up in Burma. On the day that he was commissioned by this group of churches, he met this young woman named Anne. She was 23. They fell in love and quickly wanted and to, to follow and to be with her husband on this mission because Judson's belief was, was that he had planned never to come back to America. God had called him there to preach the gospel and he was going to stay there until he died. Ladies, daddies, listen to this letter that he read or sent to Anne's daddy. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent with her departure to the heathen land or her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate in India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heavens saved, from heathens saved? through her means from eternal woe and despair? Now that is a way to ask a woman's hand in marriage. Ladies, that's the kind of man you need. Daddies, that's the kind of dad we should be. 
The daddy said, well, I believe that that sort of decision is left up to my daughter, and immediately, Anne, I wish I could read what she responded, but she's like, I'm going. I'm going. I believe in this mission. I believe that these lost people that are out here, and I understand that I'm probably never going to see my family again. I'm probably going to die in the middle of a jungle, but I am willing to go at all costs. I will be divided from my family. I will be separated from security and prosperity and all these things, but I will go. Two weeks after getting married, Adoniram and Judson and his wife, Anne, left on a 114-day trip in a boat to India. As they were getting on the boat, um, L. Nathan, that is uh, Judson's younger teenage brother, who was an atheist, walked with them to the boat. And the entire way, Judson is bawling his eyes out, begging his teenage brother to repent and to turn to Jesus, but he refused to. Judson and his wife, Anne, they get onto the boat. They were the first missionaries ever sent from America. Adoniram spends 33 years there. His desire is to plant one church of 100 members and to translate the Bible into Burmese. But their life was filled with persecution, suffering, family problems, and sickness. Anne became pregnant three times, and every child died, yet they remained. Anne became so sick one time that she had to sail back to America. It was believed that the greatest medicine for sickness was the ocean air. So they put her on her boat because she was so sick and thought she would sail back to America Adoniram continued his mission alone. He did not see his wife for two years. Two years. He had to die to companionship. He had to die to his sexual desires. And yet, brothers and sisters, Anne did not waste her sickness or her trip to America. While she was there, she wrote a book about missions to Burma and the importance of getting others involved in world missions. But as soon as she got back, guess what happened? She became pregnant. The British invaded Burma. Because he could speak English, he was labeled and believed to be a spy, so they put him into prison for 17 months. Anne loved him. She would walk for miles, pregnant, every day until her feet literally became bloody to care for her husband. At night, they would take the prisoners who were in shackles and, and they would put them on a big pole. And so if you can imagine for a moment, they would take their feet that are in shackles, they would put a pole in it and lift up the pole. So every night, the way that you slept was your head and your shoulders were on this floor, probably dirt floor, while your feet were dangling up in the air. So all the blood rushes from your feet into your head and that's how you slept. 17 months. During this time in history, if you did not have friends and family to, to bring you food and to take care of you, you would starve to death. She cared for him literally until she became ill. She became so ill that her milk dried up and Judson and her were able to convince the guard to have mercy on their child. So at nighttime, they allowed her to go into the prison and Judson, who was now feeble, he probably looked like a Holocaust survivor. There was so much sickness, they had to shave their heads. They became frail, hollowed-eyed, wearing rags for clothes, would take his child into the village to try to find a nursing Burmese mother who would feed their baby. Eventually, they continued to beg, saying, we're not spies, we're not spies, we're not spies. And the guard told them, he said, or one of the rulers told them, he said, my people are not fools enough to listen to what a missionary might say, but I fear that they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. He was eventually released. Once he was released, and died because of the sickness she got from caring for her husband. Six months after that, that little baby died. This is around the sixth year of their mission. 
no converts. Three babies dead. Wife dead. No converts. No church planted. In his grief, he receives a letter. Took eight months to get there from his family back home telling him that his daddy had died too. Needless to say, this sent Adoniram Judson into great, great, deep, deep depression. He isolated himself. He tore up all of his letters from home. He even sent word back home that all of his family, the letters that he had sent them, they were to rip them up and force them to get legal documents stating that they had torn them up. He built a hut. He took all of his earthly wealth. It was accumulated about $6,000, and he gave it all back, or gave it to, a, uh, I think, a mission board, the Baptist Mission Agency at the time. He asked for a pay cut. He refused to eat nowhere except for in the mission compound. He built this hut. Next to the hut, he dug a grave. And he would sit in that grave, or next to that grave, almost daily, Asking God, I believe in you. Saying, God, I believe in you. And yet, what is happening? Why? I think you made this exact quote. Though I, I believe in you, God, I cannot find you. In his darkest of days, he received a letter from the U.S. telling him that that teenage brother, L. Nathan, had become a Christian. And God used that letter of conversion about his brother to totally awaken Judson once again to the sovereignty of God, to the power of the gospel, and the mission of God that he had called him to. After years of preaching the gospel and seeing zero fruit, Judson finally saw his first convert. With this conversion, though, became revival. Thousands of people were coming to, uh, to Judson from all over Burma. They used these tracks, and they gave out over 10,000 of these tracks to the Burmese. News began to spread of this man from the U.S., this white man who had the word from God. And so literally people were coming as far from China. They were traveling two to three months to the middle of the jungle in Burma to hear the gospel from who they called the Jesus Christ man. As he was spreading the gospel, he came across a woman named Sarah Borden, Boardman. She was a missionary from America as well. She eventually came with her husband. Her husband died. She had a baby in hand. She was a widow. She had a young baby, and she would daily go into the tiger-infested jungle, spreading the gospel with baby on hip. Judson met her and immediately was smitten by a woman. See, she didn't load up and go back home to America. She stayed. They fell in love. They fell in love. It's wild. In the middle of the jungle, what God is doing. She begins to preach. He begins to preach. And eventually, she becomes ill. So what do they do? Send her on a boat because that's great medicine. Judson, reluctantly, because he never wants to go back to the U.S. because God has called him to the Burmese, decides to get on the boat. At this time, they have now six kids. The three youngest kids and babies, they leave in Burma because they're too young to make the trip. The three oldest kids, Sarah and Adoniram, get on a boat and when they're at the very southern tip of Africa, Sarah dies on that boat. They pull over to the coast, they dig a hole, and they put her body in it. They get back on the boat, and they keep going toward America. Once in America, Judson um, meets a woman. She's a rather young woman. He's 57 now. She's, six, she's 29. And while he's there recuperating, he meets this woman named Emily. Again, she's 29. She's a writer, very famous writer at the time. And 
um, she begins to, to, to talk to Judson, and Judson is wanting to hire her to write the memoirs of his second wife, Sarah. And when they're having these conversations, immediately Emily begins to recognize who he is and says, as a young girl, I read a book by a girl named, a woman named Ann Judson on the importance of foreign mission field, on the importance of sharing the gospel on a foreign mission field. And I've been running since that calling ever since. They fall in love. She goes with him back to Burma. Amazing to see the sovereignty of God and what takes place. They have a kid, and when Judson returns to Burma, he is informed that one of his children, that while he was away, died. After about four years of marriage, Judson became very ill, and the doctors told him that he should go on a, a voyage on the sea. So he does that. He gets on a boat with one of his friends, and on the ninth day at sea, Judson dies at 61. While he is away, Emily, his wife, now wife, gives birth to their second child, having no idea that Judson is dead. She found out four months later that he had died. Eventually, that, that child dies. And three years after that, Emily, at the age of 37, dies. Judson's desire was to plant one church of 100 members and to translate the Bible into their language. By the time of his death, there are now 8,000 converts. There's 100 churches. And not only did he translate the Bible into Burmese, but he also wrote an English-Burmese dictionary for missionaries to use. Today, in Burma, there are over 3,700 Baptist churches there. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to not waste your life. This is what it looks like to lose it. This is what it looks like not to waste the gospel, but to give it. To, to not live for the glory of self, but to live for the glory of God. Um, we do not share the gospel to get salvation. We get to share the gospel because we have been saved. The, Judson once said this, the motto of every missionary, whether preacher or printer or schoolmaster, ought to be devoted for life. In view of these things, you now can understand what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 8 even better when he says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for the sake, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the word of God. This is the calling of God. This is the purpose of God for our lives. It's to go. It's to be sent, whether that's locally or whether that is globally. Many of us need to give up. We need to die to our plans in hopes that within us, the Holy Spirit would stir between the old and the young, a desire for the gospel to spread to the nations. This is still the calling of God upon our lives, believing all the way, giving all costs for his glory and for that mission, that, that mission to go forth. Many of us need to stop our plans. We need to pick up his. And we need to do it believing all the while that he is with us and that this present suffering, if you are on mission, is well worth it. That it is through the, the tears of the martyrs and those suffering on mission that that seed of the gospel begins to sprout forth from the earth. And are we willing, brothers and sisters, as many have said before me, are, are, are we willing, brothers and sisters, to cast seed in so much and so often that we may never see its fruit, but that that seed may not burst forth out of the ground, 
until we're placed into it as well. See, it is easy to lose sight and to focus on the here and now when God is constantly pushing us to think for the kingdom and for eternity's sake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we're thankful for your patience with us. Lord, we are thankful for for men and women like the Judsons. For the sake of the glory of God, the sake of the gospel, that they were willing at all costs to suffer physically, emotionally, relationally, and to even die for the gospel. Or we're thankful for them, their testimony. And for ultimately the testimony that we have that reflects that in Jesus through the cross, through the resurrection. Lord, may you be made much of. May you call from this very room and these very people, people who will go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.